So I'm curious with a show of thumbs. <coughs> thumbs up for, don't do it yet. Thumbs up for today's been actually a pretty good day. Thumbs side, wait, wait, sideways for I'm surviving. <laughs> and some thumbs down for it's been actually pretty hard. So ready, one, two, three, go. Look around, look around, it's a whole range. You can change, you can go like this. It was everything, right? It could have been everything, okay. Next question is, how many of you, in spite of the fact, whether the day went pretty well, medium or not so good, uh, judged themselves around their experience today at some point? Yeah, just a show of hands. Okay, just look around the room again, hold on. Looks like it's unanimous, okay. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about that quality of, of self-judgment and self-criticism and how that gets in the way of our lives and, um, and how it gets in the way of our meditation and how we can work with it and other difficulties that arise in our meditation and how we can uh, counteract it with the quality of self-compassion and self-compassion is such a beautiful quality and I'll describe it and how we cultivate it. And um, so that will be the theme tonight. But let's just start first with the self-judgment. So most of us struggle with this issue of self-judgment. It is humongous. It's a huge issue, whether it manifests in small ways or large ways. It's, I think of it, I tend to think of it as a kind of epidemic in the larger culture. And of course, there's differences within cultures and there are reasons behind that. But the, the, most people I know struggle with issues of self-judgment or self-criticism, self-blame, self-hatred, the inner critic, however you want to call it. I, um, I like to collect uh, stories from out in, uh, when I hear about celebrities feeling bad about themselves. <laughs> Just because I'm curious, because when you think about it, and this is actually someone who brings a lot of awareness to this voice, and this is, um, this is from Amy Poehler's new book that came out this year. Amy Poehler, for, in case you have lived under a rock for a number of years, has, uh, has been on Saturday Night Live Was for a long time in Parks and Recreation. And she talks really frankly about her struggle with self-judgment and self-criticism. She says... And also the positive side of it, too. People ask me if I always knew I was going to be on Saturday Night Live. I think the simple answer is yes. I don't mean to sound cocky. I didn't know if I had the talent or the drive. I just had a tiny little voice whispering inside of me. The same voice would tell me I would meet Carol Burnett and someday I would find love. I would be okay. We all have tiny whispery voices, but the bad ones are usually in lower register and they come through a little clearer. I don't know where the good voice came from. It was a mix of loving parents, luck, and me. The voice that talks badly to you is a demon voice. This very patient and determined demon shows up in your bedroom one day and refuses to leave. You are six or 12 or 15, and you look in the mirror and you hear a voice so awful and mean that it takes your breath away. It tells you you're fat and ugly and you don't deserve love. It sounds like a strangled and seductive version of you. Think Darth Vader or an angry Lauren Bacall. The good news is that there are ways to make it stop talking. The bad news is that for her, she says, it never goes away. 
The demon still visits me often. I wish I could tell you that being on TV or having a nice picture in a magazine suddenly washes all of those thoughts away, but it really doesn't. I wish I were taller or had leaner hands and a less crazy smile. I don't like my legs especially. I used to have a terrific flat stomach, but now it's kind of blown out after two giant babies used it as a short-term apartment. (laughs) So someone like her with incredible success and so much uh, humor in the way she goes about life, she's, she's had to work with this. She's had to clearly work with this demon voice that she's called it. And you've probably encountered your own demon voice that doesn't let up. And maybe it is something familiar that you've known since you were six or 12 or 15. Or maybe it's something that just, as a meditator now, you're really seeing it so clearly and it's showing up in the meditation. Um, But as I said, so much of the people I encounter, so many people struggle with this, with this epidemic of self-hatred. I live in Los Angeles. It's kind of the belly of the beast of this self-comparison. Who looks the best? Who is the um, youngest looking? Who is the most successful? You know, and it's, it's just, it's in your face all the time. And... It's a question, where does it come from? It comes from our families, the, way, the, internal, the messages that we've internalized. It comes from our own, just, just, it comes from the media, it comes from our friends, our peers, our educational systems. It's all about comparing and being better than and worse than. And uh, it's, we're not living in a culture of connection and compassion. We're living in a culture, for the most part, that fosters competition. Now here's an interesting um, article about how competition, the way people have comparing minds. Here's a little story. Marie is doing Alice's hair when along comes Tanya, a mutual acquaintance. Tanya has the perfect life, great body, well-behaved children, primo social status. Watching her walk by, Alice admires her beauty, then relaxes into the pleasant sensation of Marie's hands arranging her hair. Marie, by contrast, nearly explodes with jealousy and competitiveness. Her teeth and stomach clench as she watches Tanya flaunt her long limbs, thick hair, and most enviable of all, her hugely swollen rose-red rump. Tanya, Marie, and Alice are baboons. Social primates. Just let it sink in, okay? (laughs) Social primates who share around 95% of our DNA and a lot of our psychological traits. Scientists have found that some baboons, like Marie, are extremely competitive. Others, like Alice, more mellow, less worried about measuring up. The more rank-conscious baboons suffer higher blood pressure, a stress condition we associate with driven human, uh, you know, driven competitive humans. So it's a li- in some ways it's comforting to think that this may be biologically determined in some way, right? That our, that our close relatives, these baboons, that they also suffer from issues of competitiveness. I don't know whether they think, oh, my... You know, my fur doesn't look as nice as her fur. I mean, I don't know what baboons worry about, but, or I'm a terrible baboon today. I only ate, you know, five leaves or something. I should have eaten 50. I don't know what baboons think about. But, but we do know that there's something going on inside us that, and, and probably there's something about survival um, 
where, you know, those who were most uh, aggressive survive longer or something. Who knows? But anyway, so, so because this, in humans, it manifests in so many ways. And usually, most simply, it manifests as these critical voices in our head. I'm not good enough, I'm a terrible meditator, I hate what I look like, I'm, um, I'm selfish, I should have been more caring, I made a mistake. I mean, we have these voices for many of us on a continual basis. And the truth is, if someone were as mean to us as we are mean to ourselves, we would never let them get away with it. But we do it relentlessly. We compare ourselves, we blame ourselves, we say we're not good enough, and it shows up so much as we practice. Now, it's an interesting question whether this is, uh, happens cross-culturally, and I've looked into some of the research behind it. What it seems to show is that different cultures have different relationships to it. So there was a study, it's early, the research is early, but there was a study looking at Taiwan, the United States, States and Thailand. And who do you think had the highest level of compassion towards themselves? Which of those three cultures? Taiwan? Thailand. Thailand. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Thailand is the answer. Yes. Thailand, compared to Taiwan and compared to the U.S., they had the highest level of, um, of compassion. And um, people suggest it may have to do with parenting practices. And it's just, you know, it's early research. But it's interesting to see, like, is this a universal issue or not? Perhaps not. And then there's also studies in the U.S. looking at ethnic identity and how it relates to self-compassion and whether if there are stronger ethnic ties and ethnic identity identification, that it might make people more compassionate. And so far, the results are inconclusive. They don't know the answer yet. Um, But it's just interesting to think about it on all these levels. Who's experiencing this? Are we all suffering from this as a human or baboon trait? I'm just going to turn on the lights here. I never know how to do this. Hmm. Can someone help me? Thank you. Okay. So, so there are... When I think about self-criticism, there also is value in it. It's not, ah, thank you. Excellent. (laughs) There's also value in self-criticism because it motivates us to improve, right? In a sense, if we didn't criticize, if we didn't, if we didn't, we think, if we didn't criticize ourselves, we'd never get better, you know? People think that it helps us to behave better and avoid further criticism, it provides a kind of illusion of control. If I had just tried harder, I could have been perfect. I would have had a better sitting if I had sat up straight, but instead I didn't sit up straight and that was pretty bad. So it's, it, it provides a kind of illusion of control. It also lowers expectations so we don't disappoint ourselves. And it can make others feel better so they don't like us, I'm sorry, so they like us more. So for instance, if you are very self-deprecating, maybe you think other people might like you. So self-criticism in some ways can can, uh, have a function, and it's also an interesting question because people will say, well, if I'm not critical of myself, I'll never get better. But the fact is there's something very different between uh, seeing yourself clearly 
and deciding to make a change versus beating yourself up for something that you think is wrong with you and then trying to change from that place. So if you um, are, tend to think of yourself as lazy and you wake up in the morning late, sleeping through your alarm again, and you, and you say, oh, I'm such a jerk, I can't believe I did that, I slept through it again, I'm so lazy. That's self-judgment, self-criticism. That's very different than sleeping through your alarm, waking up and going, ah, okay, I did it again, this is something I need to work on, I'm clear. Right, you see the difference? There's a quality of aversion in the part of us that doesn't like ourselves, that manifests, that comes out. <coughs> so, the, the, uh, the antidote to self-judgment and self-criticism is the quality of self-compassion. Self-compassion is essentially, the short way of thinking about it, is loving yourself for who you are, even with all your flaws. Being okay with yourself, even with your flaws. So there were a group of scientists and psychologists, who, um, most prominently Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, some of you are familiar with them, who's developed, um, who, 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 came, who were the people who really thought, came up with self-compassion as a rubric, as, a, as something to, um, to study, to research. And they have a program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which many of you may be familiar. Anybody training in Mindful Self-Compassion? Okay, a couple of people. So it's a wonderful program where you learn to teach people about self-compassion. And, um, and the definition that they use of self-compassion is being warm and understanding for, to ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate, rather than ignoring our pain or flagellating ourselves with self-criticism. Self-compassionate people realize that being imperfect, failing, and experiencing life's difficulties is inevitable. So they tend to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences rather than getting angry when life falls short of a set of ideals. This is not self-esteem. Self-compassion is really different than self-esteem. There was a big movement to bring self-esteem to to children in the last you know, 20 years. We've got it, kids, kids feel bad about themselves. Let's give them more self-esteem. So lots of pep talks, lots of good job, good job. You know that, I mean, I hear it on the playground all the time. People are always saying, good job, good job. Now, of course, there's all this research saying that it's not helpful, that saying good job to your kid all the time doesn't really work because it creates this external uh, sense of approval instead of an internal sense of, of um, I'm okay as I am. And it also can lead to inflation, thinking you're so great, needing somebody else to tell you that you're good or not good. And, um, and so now I'm learning as a parent, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to describe what you see, not say good job. You say, oh, you drew a sun and a rainbow. <laughs> or you went out, you did the monkey bars. My daughter's really into the monkey bars. So, oh, you did the monkey bars. You, did, you went across and did the monkey bars. Anyway, this is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so they tell me. And, um, and don't worry, in 20 years I will find out how I screwed up my daughter because that's the way it works. Anyway. Um, but what we're, what, so self-compassion is not self-esteem. Self-compassion is a much more loving and forgiving approach. And it has three elements. Three elements to it. They're mindfulness, loving kindness, and recognition of the universality of this condition or the sh- our shared humanity, recognition of our shared humanity. 
And so it, 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 it's essentially the incorporation of everything we're doing here on this retreat, doing the mindfulness, doing the loving kindness and the cultivation of positive emotion practice, and then this recognition that we're all in this together. And I'll go through each of these tonight as I talk, about, talk more about this. There's been a lot of research on the science of self-compassion, and what it seems to show is that people who are self-compassionate, who are more forgiving of their flaws, have greater psychological health, more resilience. It's positively associated with life satisfaction, emotional intelligence, social connectedness. It's negatively associated with self-criticism, depression, anxiety, and rumination. So the more one has self, uh, you know, has self-compassion, all of these positive benefits accrue. However, just because you don't have it now, if you don't have it now, that's fine, because we can work on it, we can develop it. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful outcomes, I think, of mindfulness practice, is people become more loving towards themselves. And I have seen this over the years, just the shift that people make. They're so much more compassionate and kind through doing these practices. I did a research study. I, I was teaching uh, the, the meditation for a research study we did at UCLA for women who were younger breast cancer survivors, which meant, um, which meant they, got they got breast cancer when they were under 50. And so they'd all survived, and, but then there's a lot of stress in your life because not only are you a young person with having dealt with that, but you, ha you have the rest of your life to deal with and also the fear of recurrence for uh, many, many years. And so we taught mindfulness in, um, in a six-week course that we have our MAPS, our Mindful Awareness Practices course. And it turned out that they were, it, it helped with depression symptoms, it helped with anxiety symptoms, and then we checked up on them three months later, and to be honest, here's what happened. Most of them didn't continue practicing. So even though it was great during those six weeks, it, they didn't continue practicing. However, some of them did, but however, the important finding we discovered was that their, their sense of compassion for themselves significantly increased during the study and stayed three months later. And even though they weren't necessarily doing their practice, which they should have been, but <laughs> they, um, they had shifted their attitude from learning meditation. They had shifted their attitude so that they were kinder to themselves. And then I met with them a couple of years later and across the board, they said they have a more mindful way of being in life, that they're more loving, loving to themselves and to others. So I bring this up because we can change. Even if we're not that loving, even if you spent the entire day here meditating, going, I'm a terrible meditator, this is, this is awful, why am I here? I'm the worst meditator in the room. Who thinks they're the worst meditator in the room, anybody? <laughs> Come on, just raise your hand if you think you're the worst one here. All right, you don't have to, you don't have to. But I'm sure one of you, or 10 of you, or 20 of you had that thought. Um, that person sits so straight and I sit so slumping. Maybe you're thinking that. There's so many ways to think about it. There's, there's just endless ways to be critical of yourself and endless ways to be loving of yourself. So let's just pause for a moment because, um, because one of the ways that we 
um, that one of the things that happens in meditation is we judge our meditation significantly. And, and we have these ideas about how our meditation is supposed to go. That it's supposed to be, you know, peaceful and I'm supposed to be loving and compassionate towards myself and I'm not supposed to get sleepy and I'm not supposed to get restless. And we have all these ideas. And then what happens is we encounter these things and then we think something is wrong. Or we think something is wrong with me. Right? They're very connected. It's it, the, the twins that we live by. Something is wrong out there or something is wrong with me. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time naming some of the difficulties you might have encountered in your meditation so that you can recognize them when you see them and also because I'll give you some tools for working with them, just, just simply to go through them. Most of um, It's traditionally called five hindrances. I like to call them the obstacles to meditation practice. And um, the really interesting thing about the obstacles to meditation is that they're not actually obstacles at all. We think they are because they feel like it. You're sleepy, you're restless, you're doubting, you're angry, you're frustrated, you want to go home, you have all these experiences. But they actually, and here's the surprise, here's the, the secret teaching, which, which is they are your practice. They're not an obstacle to your practice, they are your practice. And so, and so instead of thinking there's a problem, there's something wrong, we just learn to work with them. And as we work with, work with them, they can transform or we learn to have a mind that can be okay even in the midst of them. So the basic ones are sleepiness, being exhausted, Maybe it's not so intense. Maybe some of you, we talked a little bit, or maybe we haven't yet, but if you're experiencing a lot of sleepiness, uh, maybe it's real sleepiness, like you're just falling asleep, meditating. It could be just a sluggishness, a dullness of mind, inability to connect, a hazy, dreamy quality. And um, it's normal. It is so normal. And partially it's normal because I'm guessing that most of you don't get enough sleep. Am I right? How did I know? So, um, so with, when we practice, we come to this place and we've, it's taken so much to get here and we're exhausted and we just crash and, and it's fine. So don't, and if you're sleepy, don't worry about it. It's natural these first couple of days. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't feel good and it can feel frustrating. It can feel like I want to get through this so I can really meditate. And there are tools, and we mentioned briefly some of the tools, like standing meditation is an excellent tool. Just You're welcome to stand up if you're feeling sleepy. You're not going to fall asleep standing up. You can um, open your eyes, rub your eyes, wiggle your fingers and toes, try open eye meditation for a while. Anything that's going to bring energy. When you go out and doing the walking meditation, sometimes that'll impact and bring in more energy. And it's okay to take a nap. It's absolutely fine to take a nap. In fact, it's a really good thing to take a nap. I, um, I teach, when I teach my classes, there was a period of time where I had an aunt in her 80s who was coming to my meditation class and she had insomnia problems and she told me that she got the best sleep of the week in my classes. <laughs> so, I was very happy with that. So mindfulness is actually helpful for sleeping issues. We just had a, a research study come out a, f- a few months ago showing efficacy for, peop- for older adults with uh, sleep disorders. So, so you can try these, these 
techniques. And then you can also bring your mindfulness to the fact that you're sleepy. What is it like? What is sleepiness like? Feeling it in your body, noticing it. It doesn't have to be a problem. This is my meditation right now. It's sleepy meditation. Okay, big deal. That's what it is. Restlessness is the opposite in the second of these hindrances or obstacles. Um, Restlessness can be extreme, like we want to run and run away from the hall and we're just so amped up and can be more subtle, just like a restless quality in the mind of, in your mind, not really settling. It can be, it can have a whole range of things. And um, it's also really normal really normal to have a mind that's racing. Oh, I was going to read this, this, I forgot about this, but there's, um, there's a book called uh, Holy Cow, and it was written by a woman named Sarah McDonald who, who wrote a chapter on her experience doing a 10-day silent meditation retreat. And here's what she says about restlessness. Wonderland, Wonderland is within. I'm hyperactive and insane. One thought leads to something ridiculously unrelated and never comes back to the first. My thoughts don't make sense or come to any conclusion or insight, and there's rarely one thought at once. There are layers of boring, repetitive, crazed snippets. I'm regurgitating memories, plans, information, music, movies, friends episode, Doctor Who highlights, and daydream. It's mayhem in there. (laughs) And then the second day she says, Today I realized that my brain is beyond mad. It's now sprouting huge paragraphs from novels I've never read using language I don't even understand. Unfortunately, it doesn't last, and I come out of the meditations as moronic as I go in. I feel like I'm on drugs, but there's no one to bring me back to earth or share the experience with. My brain is so desperate, desperate for friends it's starting to talk to itself, <laughs> taking on male and female characters with strong accents and weird attitudes. When she was talking about being sleepy, she says, why am I wasting 10 days of my life learning to sleep sitting up? <laughs> um, so so this is, these are common experiences with meditators, sleepiness, restlessness. And so with restlessness, what's hel- one of the ways that can be helpful, one of the, the kind of antidotes to restlessness is to just relax a little bit. Like, don't try to be so tight, because sometimes when we get tight, we make ourselves more anxious, more restless, more wound up. So it's like the idea is, well, since Mark was using pasture analogies, I'll bring that in. Um, If you have a wild horse and you put him in a tight pen, he's going to be really wild, you know. And, um, but if you have a wild horse and you put him in a wide pasture, let him run and he'll run and run and ultimately he'll tire himself out. And it's the same way with our mind. Just if you give yourself a lot of space, often the restlessness will subside. So hearing meditation is a very helpful thing to do when you're feeling restless. It kind of takes you out of all of the, the, the sensations going on in your body and just lets you keep the mindfulness alive but wide open and it can calm you down quite a bit. And you can also learn to be present with it. So it, it can feel like an obstacle, but what if you were to switch that around and just say, oh, it's my practice right now. It's my practice. I can be present with being, uh, being restless. There was a retreat I was on many, many years ago. It was um, 
of a couple of months and I was practicing and I just got all this restlessness, like crazy amounts of energy and restlessness in my body. And I, and it, I couldn't even sleep very well. And so I remember there was this one night I had so much restlessness and I started thinking, all right, I'm going to start running laps. That's what I'm going to do. So I went out down to the parking lot. I wasn't here at different center. I'm running around, running around and trying to tire myself out and it didn't work. So then I think, all right, I'm going to do yoga. So I'm doing these intense yoga poses and I'm still not tired and still restless. And then I go out into the woods and I have this great idea and it's like three in the morning at this point. I think, I'm going to go for a hike. (laughs) And I go out into the woods and I get about five minutes out there and suddenly, um, and suddenly I think there's cougars in here. What am I going to do? I'm convinced I see a cougar. I did not see a cougar. There was no cougar. (laughs) I don't believe there are cougars in that part of the country, but I was convinced I saw a cougar. So I ran inside and then, you know, it was starting to be daylight and ultimately I went and I talked to my teacher and my teacher said, how are you doing? He said, I'm having a horrible time. I'm so restless. And he said, what'd you do? And I said, well, I did yoga. I went running (laughs) and I went hiking, Um, but nothing worked. And he said, well, did you try sitting with it? hadn't occurred to me. So then I began the process of what does it mean to sit with the restlessness, to just be present with it. And I did. And it was really uncomfortable, a lot of strong vibratory sensations in my body, a lot of racing thoughts. But I learned to be with it. And I saw that I could be mindful even in the midst of restlessness. That it was just restlessness. It was, I mean, it was unpleasant. I didn't want it to be there, but it was just restlessness. And that's the way we can work with anything that arises, including self-judgment and self-criticism, which I'll return to in a few minutes, that we can begin to see that these thoughts and feelings are just arising and that we don't have to take them so personally and get so caught in them. So more just to complete these uh, hindrances and difficulties, sense uh, what we think of as desire. Desire arises, that's another one. You're meditating and all you can think about is lunch. The food's been really good this week, hasn't it? It's been delicious, right? So that's unfortunate for you meditators (laughs) because then you spend a lot of time thinking about lunch or what's going to be for dinner. but then if it were bad, then you'd be thinking about how much you didn't like it. So it, there's, you can't win. Um, so so our mind, when we have desire as a hindrance arising, it's that mind that goes into fantasy, planning for pleasant, remembering past wonderful sushi meals that you ate or whatever your particular thing is, dreaming of chocolate, dreaming of a person, sexual, what, whatever it is, our mind will go anywhere to take us out of this present moment. Now this hindrance is kind of fun because you actually enjoy yourself, right? It's sort of pleasant, it is pleasant, it can be quite pleasant, but it actually takes you away from what we're doing here. And so what's helpful to do is when you recognize your mind has gone off into these fantasies, into this desire realm, is to recognize it and remind yourself why you're here. And it can be helpful to reflect on your motivation, why you're practicing. Um, You can also feel it. What does desire feel like in my body? 
because there's a lot of strong feelings. And to bring attention to it and make it be your mindfulness practice. What is happening here? Oh, there's tension and a clutching and a desiring and wanting. It's very powerful. What we're talking about here is that nothing get, gets excluded from our practice. It's all part of it. Desire, hating, self-judgment, sleepiness, restless, it's all, it's all part of the show. She didn't have any good quotes about desire for now, at least, so I'll skip her for a moment, Sarah McDonald. But let's go into a next one. Um, oh, and just to say, also, if you're working with it, to be really vigilant around, oh, fantasy, okay, fantasy. Notice that you're lost in the fantasy or in the pleasant memory or the pleasant thought, or even, it could even be just desire for a better meditation. You know, it doesn't have to be some big deal, but just to really be on top of noticing it, being aware of that and coming back into the moment. The two hindrances most closely related to self-doubt and self-criticism are the hindrance of doubt and the hindrance of aversion. So doubt is, um, doubt, you know, you could be doubting anything. You're meditating and you're doubting, am I doing this right? Where do I pay attention to my breathing? What do I, what do I do sound? Do I do body? Do I, I'm probably doing this wrong. I'm sure I'm doing this wrong. What does Mark know? You know, what does Diana know? What does Bob know? All right, Bob knows everything. You know that. But the rest of us, what do we know? So, um, so your mind can just get caught in these intense loops of am I doing it right? And, and then, the self, then it can also be self-doubt. I'm terrible, I'm not doing this right, and so on. This one is a really difficult hindrance because for the very simple reason that it feels like it's real. You know, when you're lost in the doubt, it just feels like it's real. So it's very important to begin to identify when you're lost in doubt. And you can say, okay, I'm lost in doubt. And just, sometimes it's helpful to doubt the doubt. If you have enough wherewithal, just doubt the doubt if you're doubting that. Again, reflecting on the benefit of practice, of why you practice can be very helpful. And know, and talking to a teacher is helpful. Knowing that in the long run, it gets chipped away. Let's see, her doubt is, oh, this is related to self-esteem. She says, I've heard the Dalai Lama warn that too many Westerners come out of meditation retreats thinking they are Buddha. (laughs) My self-image is not that good. (laughs) I think I'm Sally Field and Sybil (laughs) with a major multiple personality disorder. Conducting my own psychotherapy, I half hope for repressed childhood memories. All I come up with are ABBA and KISS songs. That's scary. Okay. So, 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 and then I'll and then I'll just give you a little more in a moment on working with doubt as as it relates to self judgment. Aversion. That's the fifth hindrance. Aversion is the the sense that I hate this. What am I doing? This is boring. I don't like this. Any any form of dislike hatred, uh, or mild, mild to extreme, and, um, and it, or judgments, you know, so judgment is in this category too, judging others, judging ourselves. Uh, just to say a little bit about boredom, because that came up a few times in, our, in my groups, uh, boredom is good, boredom is healthy, it's great to be bored, you know why? 
because out of it comes this great creativity can flow. So they talk a lot with, um, in, in raising kids about giving the children space to be bored so that their own natural inherent creativity can emerge. And in a sense with, um, with, uh, with meditation, it's not like we want you to specifically be creative, but, we want you, but it's helpful to learn to sit with boredom and just go, oh, this is boredom. What is boredom like? What does boredom feel like in my body? What is boredom causing in my mind? What's happening here? And in that way, it, we can get really interested in boredom, and boredom then is no longer boring. It's just a fascinating thing that we can, what is bored? How is it operating? Or if you're feeling bored, pay closer attention to your experience. Really feel each breath or each step with minute attention like you're a scientist exploring your body and mind. So it's, um, it's actually a gift. Boredom is a gift for those of you who are struggling with it. And see what happens as you sit with it. So one of the most helpful uh, tools for working with aversion, not liking, hating, having a hard time, is, is using the loving-kindness practice. Bringing that in when you're feeling, when you're having a hard time can be helpful. So those are just a, a little bit of, of guidelines around these. Oh, oh, I forgot to read her aversion. She has a good one. Where is it? Mm, can't find it? Hold on, I can. Here we go. Today I'm feeling very dizzy and faint. My knees are killing me and I have a horrific headache from coffee withdrawal. <laughs> My bowels are also missing caffeine and it seems I'm not the only one. Everyone <laughs> is scoffing tab- tablespoons of laxatives. How are we meant to cleanse our brains when our bodies are as clogged as India's toilets? <laughs> I'm also suffering sensory deprivation and feeling exhausted beyond all tiredness. And I realize now why there's a vow not to kill. (laughs) There's a mad Indian down the hall who's been yelling some political slogan through a distorted loudspeaker for four hours. I've meant to be sorry, I'm meant to be cultivating tolerance and infinite compassion and all I can think about is how I'd like to murder him. So if you have any of these feelings too, um, you're normal. (laughs) You are. Murderous rage, normal. It is. Great. What you do with it is another story. But the fact that these things go through our body and mind is absolutely a normal part of being a human. So... So let's talk about the three pieces here. How do we, um, how do we bring mindfulness, uh, how do we look at the three pieces of self-compassion? Mindfulness, kindness, and then the shared humanity piece. So mindfulness, I've basically really in a sense been talking about it. Whenever these voices come up in our heads, the judging voice, the comparing voice, or any of the other things that I just talked about, there's no, there, there, this is a beautiful opportunity to bring mindfulness to the fact that a judgment has arisen. We get these thoughts and we take them so personally. We have a thought, I'm not good enough, I'm a terrible meditator, everybody in the room hates me. You know, whatever it is, whatever your particular thought is. And then what happens is we believe it. 
we identify it with it. In other words, we take it really, really personally when it's in fact just a thought. And as I, I like to teach, the bumper sticker that says, don't believe everything you think. This is a very profound teaching, the bumper sticker teaching of don't believe everything you think. It is just a thought coming and going. And you are seeing this because you are here on this retreat and you are noticing your thoughts arising and some of them you're grabbing onto and some of them you're just letting go like clouds in the sky passing us by. So this is wonderful. This is, this is wonderful that we can learn to see our thoughts just as thoughts, especially the really difficult, painful thoughts, these ones that tell us we're not good enough and cause us to compare. You know, I often talk about it's, it's, it's about not getting on the train. We're meditating and we have a thought, I'm not good enough, I'm really not good enough, see what happened at my job last week, my, that proves it, you know, and then it's like the train has left the station and it's, we're going down that train and it's down the track. It's 20 miles down the track that we've been on this train. And then at some point we wake up and we go, oh, I'm on the train. And, but you're already in New York City, right? And you just get off that train. Sorry, I'm being West Coast centric. Let's say we start in San Francisco and we go to New York. <laughs> but, um, but the next time maybe you get on the train again and I'm, so, I'm such a bad person, blah, 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 but you get off in Chicago. Right? And then maybe you start to just get off in Sacramento or something. You know, I mean, it might, and maybe you never get on the train in the first place. You stay at the platform and you let those thoughts go. They're just thoughts. They're very compelling, very powerful thoughts. And we need to work with them and we need to understand them. But we also can learn to disentangle from them, to let them become the thoughts rather than my thoughts. So it's also important if there are emotions happening with this negative thinking that we bring our attention into our bodies and feel what's here. And sometimes when we have these thought loops of I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, it's helpful to check in. What, is it, what am I feeling in my body right now? Oh, I'm just really sad or I'm anxious. And then bring some kindness right in there. Just send the loving kindness in right on the spot. You can count how many times you judge yourself. Feel free to count it. I once gave a, um, and the reason that one would count it is to see the, just the habitual nature of this mind. This mind that consistently tells us we're not good enough. I mean, I haven't even talked about being a mindfulness facilitator. How many of you are comparing yourself to everybody else, thinking they must be great facilitators and I'm terrible? Or I'm just starting, but I know that person has 20 years of experience. Or, I mean, this is going on all the time. So we can start to see it. You know, I'm, you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm so lazy, I slept through my alarm. So then judging, judging one. Then you go to brush your teeth and there's no toothpaste and you think, Oh, I'm so stupid, I forgot to buy toothpaste, judging too. Then you get to judging 25 or judging 56 and it's only 10 in the morning. And you start to see the habitual nature of this mind. And you start to let go and kind of smile at it. Years ago, I gave this exercise to count judgments to a group of young girls I was working with. They were about 14, 15. And I said, count your judgments. And then I, I didn't see them for a month. And they came back and I had forgotten I had given them the exercise. And I said, and this girl comes up to me and she says, 638. 
And I said, 638 what? She said, judgments. And she was so pleased with herself because <laughs> she just saw that they were judgments. They were just judgments. And so I said, well, um, well, it turned out, by the way, that she was not only counting her own judgments, she was counting everybody else's judgments. <laughs> so she'd be in school and she'd say, 97, 361. But she began to see the impersonal nature of the judgments that arise and began to have some freedom in it. And this is so wonderful when we have the freedom. We see judging. It's just judging. This is the role mindfulness can play in working with self-judgmental thoughts, and it's very powerful. And as we start to have that space, we can then bring in our wisdom mind to counteract these thoughts. We can bring in the wisdom mind that says, you know what, you're actually, you're okay. You'll be fine. Or, yeah, you're judging yourself, but you're really a good person. Here's a little story. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother said no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we have just half of the aisles left to go. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum. This is not about my daughter, by the way. Um, She would never do that. Are you kidding? She's, gum, gum, gum. Um, The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll go through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out into the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) So we can, yes, we can employ the wisdom mind to counteract these voices that we've had our whole lives. And this leads us to part two of working with self-compassion. And that is the cultivation of more and more loving kindness, loving kindness for ourselves. So that practice that you did, that beautiful practice that we we offer and that some of you have done for a long time and that you're familiar with, of just cultivating this state of love for yourself is a beautiful way of working with self-judgment. So it's kind of like you work on the cognitive level, being really mindful of the difficult thoughts And then you also work on on filling yourself up with love, ascending kindness and compassion to yourself, which um, can be done on the spot, can be done as a cultivation practice. I had a period of time in my life where I had left a nonprofit that I had worked at for many years, and I was so burnt out and so exhausted. And I came to Spirit Rock and I, had, I was here for a month-long retreat, and I thought, I'm just going to do loving-kindness for myself. I wasn't going to do loving-kindness for anybody. I wasn't interested in anybody at this moment. <laughs> I was just interested in me feeling a little bit better. 
And so I spent that month just sending it, directing it. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. And, and I found phrases that really worked for me, that really connected. And the phrases I used were, um, may I have strength in my body and mind. May I have ease in my being. May I accept myself just as I am. And may I be free. And I just said it again and again, and I just kept saying it. And then what would come up is I would, I would send it to myself and I would feel, oh, I don't deserve it, or I don't like myself, or I'm, you know, all of these things would come up. And I would give love to that part of me that felt so bad. And I would, and I just, it was like increasing the amount of love in my being by sending it again and again and working with the voices that said I wasn't okay. And I just kept doing this over time, over that month. And then after I left that retreat, I spent the next year doing it as my meditation practice. I put mindfulness to the side and I just did the loving kindness just for myself again and again and again. And by the end of this year period, something had shifted. And those voices didn't arise so much because I had been very critical of myself as a younger person, just so perfectionist, wanting to get it right, judging myself so strongly when I didn't get it right. And I learned to be more loving and more forgiving. And it was the power of this practice. I love this quote. I love this quote from, uh, where is it? This is from Bell Hooks, the feminist uh, critic theorist who says, when I talk with friends and acquaintances about self-love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion, as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self-love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self-centeredness and selfishness. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. It's the foundation. This is what we're doing here. We're learning to love, and the more we can love, the more we can go out and serve, the more we can give with an open heart instead of a place of scarcity, and I'm not good enough, and they're better than me, and I'm... It, and this is what happens all the time. So the cultivation of the loving, um, loving qualities through the kindness practice, that's part two. Shared humanity, part three. We're all in this together. There's not a single person who doesn't suffer in the same way And when we recognize this, I mean, our suffering is different, but we all suffer. And you'll be surprised to see how many of us suffer in similar ways. So we're going to do a very brief exercise because we're getting towards the end of things here. But um, I'm just going to say a few questions to prove my point. This is science here. I'm going to scientifically prove to you that I am correct. (laughs) That... um, that, uh, we all suffer in similar ways and that this is a shared experience. So this is, you're going to get a little exercise. So I'm going to read a phrase and I want you to stand up if you, if you agree with this. So stand up if you've ever compared yourself to others. Okay, sit down. 
I'm not going to do it because I'm going to... Anyway, it's not going to work. But anyway, stand up if you've ever done something stupid. <laughs> okay, back down. Stand up if you've ever failed miserably at something important to you. <laughs> okay, back down. Stand up if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. <laughs> All right, back down. You know, you can stay standing if you want. <laughs> It's up to you. Stand up if you've ever felt that other people were smarter or cleverer than you. Stand up if you... You can stay standing. If you've ever... And sit down if it doesn't apply. If you've ever not achieved something you wish you had. <coughs> Excuse me. If you've ever had your heart broken. If you've ever been hurt by someone you love or lost someone that you love, or something that was important to you. Okay, so let's just take a moment to pause and just take a look around the room and see most all of us standing and a few of us sitting because we didn't want to get up. <laughs> But I want you to really remember this. So look around the room and just get a, get a visual image, feel it, and just kind of take a mental snapshot so that when you think you're the only one you will have this image come back to you that you are not the only one. Do you see this? You are not the only one. Okay, and then let's just send compassion, just wishing everyone ease for all suffering. Let's sit back down. So the three components of self-compassion, the component of um, cultivating mindfulness to work with the thoughts, cultivating loving kindness to open up your heart and bring more love to yourself, the recognition of our shared humanity. There's a fourth component that um, Kristen Neff, it doesn't, it's not in their formulation, but it's definitely how I see it. And that is the recognition that we are, are, that within each of us is a natural radiance that cannot be disturbed by anything that comes towards us or that we think about ourselves or that we feel that our depression, we are not our depression, we are not our anxiety, We are not our fear, we are not our judgment, we are not any of those things. We are something so much greater and so much deeper than that. And this practice gets us in touch with this and that's one of the most incredible things that can happen when we practice is we see the, the goodness that's in each of us. And we might be able to see the goodness in the rest of you but not see it in ourselves. And yet when we practice, we'll have these moments of connecting with our own inner radiance, our own inner goodness, where we feel a sense of joy or spaciousness or humor or goodness or light or love. And if we can remember that this is who we are, this is really who we are, that's, there's so much joy in that. Rather than being identified with the I'm not good enough We can recognize the, I'm not good enough. Those are just the clouds obscuring our sky. The true nature is that, our, that we're like the sun. 
this radiance in us. And so as I conclude tonight, I just want <clears throat> to I just want to remind us that when we go through the ups and downs of the rest of the retreat and you go into places of self-judgment, self-criticism, so you could, you have these tools now for working with it. When you deal with the hindrances and obstacles that arise, you have these tools. But if we can always come back and remember this fundamental ground of our being, that's where there's freedom. That's where there's joy. And you may not agree with me, you may not believe me, um, I am in good company. It's not just my opinion. I'm in good company with great philosophical and spiritual traditions and with the concept in Buddhism, of course, of Buddha nature. But, um, so I just want to remind you of that. It's a really important piece. And I'll just end with this little quote from um, Dujam Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, and he says, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, having purified the great delusion the heart's darkness, the radiant light of the unobscured sun continually rises. So let's just take a moment to close our eyes. And taking a few breaths and just letting yourself settle. And see if you can connect with a moment in your mind where you felt your own inner goodness, your own inner radiance. This could be on the retreat so far, could be out in nature at some point, when you were with a good friend, in the midst of some creative artistic activity, but some place where you just felt connected with your own goodness. See if something arises. Notice how that feels. Notice how that feels inside. And we can just remind ourselves, may I open to my own goodness. Welcome, goodness. May I one day open to my goodness. May I find this radiance inside me and trust it and know it to be true. And just breathing and sensing. Thank you, and we'll have a walking until uh, nine o'clock. The bell ringer, the bell ringers have been a little, um, just if you're a bell ringer, just remember to ring the bell. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so ring it a little before nine o'clock. We'll have a nine o'clock set. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.